many times the mistake some people make is when they look at this evidence, they'll find any way possible to fit it in their preferred worldview. So if you if you bend over enough, you can you can rationalize all of the things I'm going to tell you. The question is not whether could it work, but what's more likely. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt. Uh, today, we're going to be going over Noah's Flood. Uh, so you may have seen on our Facebook page that, well, at time of recording, it's in two days. But by the time you are hearing this, it'll have already happened. I will be having a debate with the legendary Kent Hovind, creationist extraordinaire. Uh, so since I've already done a ton of research for that debate, I thought that I might as well shamelessly steal that research for a podcast, too. And we had talked to the past that we don't want to stick with religion only. And when you hear this, it'll be back to back religious episodes. But it just so happened that the timing of Jordan's debate and all the prep work, we thought we'd take advantage of that. And so mainly because we're lazy and, you know, yeah, I mean. As, as most skeptics are. so Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we thought we'd go through just like what is the the flood story in case some of you don't know it or its context. Um, and once we put it in its appropriate historical context, then we can talk about some of the creationist um, claims about it and whether or not they hold water. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> but I think you did intend that actually. Halfway through, I heard it coming, and I just just went through. That's what she said. All right, um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, quick, quick background: we are talking about the the flood in Genesis of the the Old Testament of the Hebrew and Christian Bible, and um, the basic story is that humanity was so bad and. God couldn't find anybody on earth that was worth, you know, saving minus one person. And so he decides to send a flood and destroy the entire of humanity. And uh, yeah, you guys know the story. So like the whole world too, not just humanity. Yeah, but... the whole world. Aminals, trees, plants, everything. Wipe it out. Because reasons but so one thing i found interesting um about this in my studies uh, in the past was that flood myths were actually very common in the near east uh during this time uh it wasn't just uh christianity or, or judaism this this time being when when was this written so well that's a good question so the traditional view is that this was written by moses and that would put it about, um, what was that like? I don't even remember, like 3,000, 2,000, something, a couple, 2,000, 2000 years BCE, basically. Um, I don't remember the exact date of that. But that's not that's not actually accurate. No serious scholar in, in Old Testament studies believes that Moses wrote this book. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. One thing that we touched on in the earlier episode was uh, the documentary hypothesis. And that actually comes into play in the flood accounts because there are two distinct sources in within the, the flood account, one of them being the J source and the other being the P source. Um, so the J is the Yahweh, Yahweh, so Yahweh, and the P being the priestly uh, source. And if you take the, the flood account apart, you'll see there are two very distinct stories that have been meshed together. And they call it the J source because uh, the authors specifically refer to God as Yahweh. And in the priestly account, they refer to God as Elohim. And they're, they're stylistically different as well. But those two main come into play. And the, the consensus is, is that the flood account in Genesis... Um, this story was actually written as early as 950 BCE, but more likely around the fifth century. Um, so 
like 580, when they were in Babylonian exile, basically, is when these stories were actually put together. Now, they were around for a lot longer than that as oral stories and oral traditions that were passed down from generation to generation. But what we can say is that they weren't written in the time of Moses. They were written much later. And they were very common to have uh, these flood myths, as we said before, in that, in that area. And one of the most uh, famous ones is actually the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, you may have heard of. And this is uh, Utnapishtim passes on this, this epic to Gilgamesh. And this was, a, this was a Babylonian myth that was passed down. So it's very, it's not the same story as the flood account in Genesis, but it has a lot of similarities. Uh, one, uh, God was pissed at the world, uh, decided to make it rain, tells make it rain make it rain uh, <laughs> they build a they build a boat and they save a bunch of stuff and then there's a global flood and then at the end of it uh, even down to the point where uh gilgamesh is, uh sends out birds to see if there's dry land and stuff now the birds that he sends out are different than the birds in the genesis account but very similar stories and if you line them up they're huh they're very similar I didn't know that it was, I knew that they were similar. I didn't know that they were like that similar. Very similar. Um, so here's a little, little excerpt from, from Gilgamesh. When the seventh day arrived, I put out and released a dove. The dove went, it came back for no perching place was visible to it. And it turned around. I put out and released a swallow. The swallow went, it came back for no perching place was visible to it. And it turned around. I put out and released the raven. The raven went out and saw the waters receding, and it ate and preened, lifted its tail, and it did not turn around. So, I mean, this is these are almost verbatim. But, I mean, obviously the birds are different, the amount of birds that were sent out, but they were sent out in threes. And so you just see the similarities in these stories, mm-hmm. which, is, which is very – and there, there's more than just Gilgamesh too. There's other stories in the Mesopotamia area uh, at that time. But all that to say – scholars believe that flood myths were common in the area and they would have been traded back and forth as people traveled and bartered and went from place to place. Uh, One thing that's significant with the Genesis account, though, is that these stories were written down at a time when Israel was in exile in Babylon. And so the Israelites had been captured. uh, The temple was destroyed in 586, 585, they were taken off to exile. And during this time, the people were starting to write down their stories to preserve their history and their traditions as a result of being in a foreign land with new cultures. And they were trying to reclaim their identity. And so it's no, you know, no coincidence that some of the things they wrote down were very similar to some of the stories that they were hearing in this foreign land. And a lot of people believe that they were doing this to compete with the, the Babylonian gods. Make Israel great again. Make Israel great again. Yeah. So I, I, I highly encourage people to go and actually check out um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a pretty quick read, but it's, it's one of the things when I first started studying that made me shook my foundations of my faith a little bit because I was like, whoa, like I had never even heard of these these stories before. Obviously, they're not going to teach it in Sunday school, but let alone the similarities and stuff uh, in it took away some of that special, you know, exclusivity to the the gospels and the old testament stories. So. That's uh interesting we were talking about this earlier. When I was a Christian, I never looked deep into it. I just kind of knew that they were flood myths from other cultures. And when I heard that that sort of half an inch deep understanding, that undergirded my faith in a literal interpretation of Genesis. So I was like obviously all of these people have flood myths because they're all remembering the flood of Noah. And why would cultures around the globe, why would they talk about flooding if not for a global flood? I mean, it's not like flooding would have happened to all of them at some point in their history. Right. Well, I mean, so there is, there is one thing to be said about, you know, floods happen, right? So you know, floods will occur. They'll take away crops and harvest and things like that, but also water in, in mythology is seen as like a sign of life. Right. And so what you see is water gives and takes away life. And so they'll come up with these stories to account for, you know, things, uh, even in like Christian baptism, 
a baptism is essentially a mini flood. You are washed away, you're flooded, and the evil's taken away, and then you're brought back up and there's new life. And so it's very similar to what happens with the earth. The earth just gets baptized, so to speak. <laughs> but yeah. So it's a little more violent though. Yeah, a little, a a little more violent. You don't actually die in baptism, but I mean not if you do it right, I guess. <laughs> I if you think about it, there have been so many billions of Christians, somebody has died oh, yeah. in baptism. Somebody. Yeah, somebody who was really bad, they're like, We gotta hold this guy down for a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> and they oops. Yeah. Uh yeah. it's definitely happened at some point. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I don't know of any stories, but I bet if we did some research, we could find somebody that was killed in baptism. <laughs> that would be good. But, you, you know, go ahead. go ahead. I was just saying like water is a, is a sign of life and, and, you know, rebirth and stuff. So that may be why these other cultures have flood stories to kind of tell the mythology of like creation and all this stuff. So, so that's all fine if it's mythology and it's kind of taken as um, a, a fable or kind of parable or whatever. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in America, that is not how it is taken. According to Gallup in 2017, they put out a poll and uh, the belief in like literal creationism as defined by the Bible, reaching all, all, all time low. Um, it was 38%. 38%? That believe that God created man in his present form. I would have thought it had been less than 10%. Um, the the other numbers, uh, about the same, pretty much identical, believe that man developed with God's like guiding hand. So that would be like a... Um, old Earth creation? Like an old Earth creationist or deistic evolutionist sort of thing. And only 19% believe that man developed, but God had no part in the process. Wow. Um, that is also an all-time high. So, uh, The trends yes. are looking positive. <laughs> looking positive, but yeah. Uh, more than a third of people in America believe, or say, at least told Gallup, that... Um, God created humans in his present form, which um, they may not have thought it through completely, but that means at least a significant portion of Americans believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old, um, that the Adam and Eve were created in the garden, etc., and then some thousands of years later, the whole flood story we just talked about happened, and in literally, like not figuratively, not for a lesson, the world was covered by a global flood, Noah and his family and then Ark saved all the animals. They floated on top of this flood and then eventually let out the birds and stuff. And then the waters receded and they continued on. Hmm. I guess from a, just from a practical standpoint, I mean, like if, if you're a, you know, 10 year old, six year old kid and somebody tells you that story, it seems plausible, right? I mean, I didn't question it when (laughs) I was 10, (laughs) (laughs) but what happens when you actually start thinking about it? Uh, so, as with most things, there's a wide variety of models for young Earth creationism, and the exact um, the, the minutia will vary. Whether you go to look for answers in Genesis, or you talk to Kent Hovind, or whoever, um, but broadly speaking, they make certain claims. They claim that. Um, all of the fossils that we see, the fossil record, they're all evidence of this massive flood because they're creatures being buried rapidly mm-hmm. while alive. Um, and that's where fossils come from. Um, the layers of sediment we see, like if you go to the Grand Canyon, you'll see all the different layers of rock. That's all laid down by the flood as well. Okay. Um, and obviously, everything's just a couple thousand years old. This seems very plausible to me. So far, I can see no flaw. And then there's more to it, like the uh, the, the animals all evolved from Noah's, from the ones that came from Noah's Ark. He brought one of each, or a pair of each kind. There's debate as to what a kind means. Now, um, when you say evolved, do you mean evolved? So that's, that's interesting. And um, if you kind of observe 
creationism through time, they're they've gotten sophisticated in that they incorporate enough of science, science um, of of modern belief in order to kind of undergird their mythicism. Is this the micro versus macro evolution thing? Exactly. So they would say that while creatures can certainly evolve within their kind, and they'll never quite define what kind means. Um, you can't. You'll never. A dog will never give birth to an elephant or something. So like we that. have dog kinds, cat kinds, bear kinds, right. bird kinds. Sure. Um, but what about the platypus? So, well, I guess there'd be a platypus kind. <laughs> I don't know. Well. Um, so yeah, that that's the basic claim. Okay. Um, now, does that claim stand up to scrutiny? If you're a skeptic, you would want to scrutinize this, right? Well, here's uh, whether you believe it or not, um, as with all claims, what you want to start with, you want to start it at a, at a, a position of skepticism. You know, someone has made a claim, whatever that claim is. So you should ask for evidence. And what you're looking for in any model is the ability to make predictions that are confirmed by evidence. So you want to look at the model um, and s- kind of see first if the assumptions that it makes are valid, mm-hmm. and if the observations of things we find mesh with what the predictions of the model are. It's kind of like being a detective. So um, what many creationists will say is, well, you can't know because you weren't there. They'll say things like, uh, if you find things in the in the present, that's that's science. But in the past, it's historical science. It's you know basically guessing. You know, you can't know. But, I mean, anything is looking in the past, you know, like the speed of light is finite. So when I look over at the Christmas tree, I'm not seeing the Christmas tree as it is. You're seeing it a couple milliseconds ago. Probably less than milliseconds, but at some finite period of time ago. Um, And so like a detective, um, you may not have seen the murder. But if you examine the crime scene, you see fingerprints, you see DNA, maybe you find someone, you make a model that this guy did it, you test that model by checking his alibi or whatever, um, you can build a case that makes it probable that whatever person did it. You may not know in the sense of absolute certainty, but you're not going to have absolute certainty on just about anything. Right. And so... As skeptics, we want to know what is most probable. Right, exactly. So um, I think we'll just go through some of the core tenets uh, that would address pretty much any flood model. So can I I ask a question? Yeah. So I was never a young earth creationist. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was taught that in like Sunday school, my grandfather's church, but it never, like I never really bought into it, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I guess as a lay person on the subject, I would ask like my, the biggest thing for me would be like, well, how did animals get to Australia? That's an excellent question. Um, so one, one piece of possibly disconfirming evidence is the distribution of creatures on the earth. Um, the answer to that, what they'll say is, well, when they landed at Mount Ararax, that's where the Ark supposedly landed, which is supposedly somewhere in the Middle East. No one's quite sure where. And all the animals would have disembarked from there. Um, as the floodwaters were receding, there was a lot more land bridges between different land masses than there are now. And so um, all of the Australian creatures walked there. They, they walked, basically. Hmm. Um, of course, that begs the question, one, uh, the flood... The world had just finished being buried for six months in water. How many plants were there to eat on the way? I mean, <laughs> I'm no botanist, but I don't think many plants can hold up to that. Um, <laughs> uh, secondly, um, that that entails a lot of discipline on the uh, on the part of the the animals. So, like for Australia, for instance, all marsupials except for like one or two species live in Australia. So do they all like get together and have like a marsupial meeting? It's like, you know what? We're all going to go this one way, you know? Um, Instead, if you just thought about it, if all of the animals in the world were in one spot and then Noah's like, all right, go be animals. 
what are animals going to do? Well, they're going to radiate. Maybe not equally. You know, there's going to be some preference based on where the water is, where the food is. But you would expect there to be greater biodiversity near the release point and progressively less as, you know, fewer and fewer animals right. went that far. You're going to have a couple of kangaroos in the Near East somewhere. Sure. Yeah. Because they, they got tired of walking halfway and like, screw yeah. it, we're living here. You know? <laughs> but obviously that's not what we see. So another another one that hits me is you brought up like the Grand Canyon, for example, mm-hmm. and the the idea that the sediment like was put down in these certain layers. But just from a brief like knowledge of the subject, it seems like when you actually look at these sedimentary layers you see fossils from earlier periods the further down in the layers you go. So you don't have like dinosaur fossils in the top layer and you don't have finch fossils in the bottom layer. Right. Um, And so the answer to that is that they are sorted, um, but they are not sorted by age. They're sorted. uh, They give a couple different mechanisms um, depending on who you ask. Uh, First, they'll say things like they're sorted by density. So like, in water, denser objects fall faster. Mm-hmm. So less dense objects are at the top. So if you get like reptiles, which are very dense, they're going to be at a lower level than mammals. Um, and then like things like clams would be at the bottom because they're very heavy and dense. Uh, they'd also say that it depends on where they were when they started. So clams, for example, would be at the bottom because they were already at the bottom you know, and then they'd get buried and then you'd have other things based on where they were. And then also intelligence, like differential mobility. Um, they'd say things like the humans are really smart. So they like ran to the highest elevation, but you know, the, the, the muskrats weren't as quick, so they didn't make it. And the birds, they're near the top because they could fly. Um, one wonders why the dinosaurs were too stupid to realize they didn't want to drown. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I guess, does the science bear out these theories? Like, if you compare it to actual like scientific explanations for the different fossil orders. So the opposing view is that they are in that order because lower rocks are deposited first, which not even creationists dispute. They just dispute the time range. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't deposit a rock in in midair. You know, so the the mainstream view. I, I almost said correct view. The mainstream <laughs> view is that um, the reason you see the sorting is because that's the way things evolved and they buried, they were buried in the order they appeared, basically. So it'd be very easy to check. We just have to check the predictions. Um, so starting with the hydraulic sorting one, um, fluids sort, they do, denser objects do fall faster. That's true. Um, also, if object, larger objects fall slower, because they have greater surface area, so they experience more drag. So if you have two objects of equal density, the smaller object will fall faster. Okay? So if you shook up, if you had a, a, a container of rocks or whatever in water and you shook it up a bunch and all the rocks were about the same density, if you shook it up enough, you'd end up with all the big rocks at the top and progressively smaller rocks at the bottom. It's right. kind of similar to the Brazil nut effect, mm-hmm. um, where if you have a bunch of, like, it's gets that name from like a container of nuts if you shake the nuts the bigger nuts will rise to the top right because as uh, sediment changes if they're voids the small things can fall into the voids but the big ones can't so when so you they're... don't want to eat just peanuts you shake the can right exactly and, the, and eventually that the bigger particles will rise to the top so that would be fantastic if that's what we observed in the fossil record um it's not so for example um Looking at things that are the same density, uh, if you look at the ammonite, um, the ammonite is a uh, cephalopod, like an octopus thing, similar to the modern-day nautilus, and it had this curled shell, the spiral shell, okay? Uh, All of them had a similar-looking shell, like, obviously, there are differences, but they were roughly similar um, on the outside, and they were huge variety of sizes from like your thumbnail all the way up to like man-sized shells oh wow some like huge things um there were differences on the inside of the shell though so they had gas chambers that help with buoyancy and whatever i'm not a marine biologist but um the chambers and some of them are very simple and then some of them are more complex you know in terms of the way these chambers are sorted or are shaped 
So if hydraulic sorting was correct, what you'd expect is to see all the big ones at the top and then progressively smaller, right? But in fact, you see them on every rock layer, all different sizes of this type of creature, all mixed together. But there is a type of sorting by complexity. The ones with simple shells are at the bottom, and the ones with complex shells are at the top, and never the other way around. Never. And that's what you would expect if you were from an evolutionary model where... Exactly. Complexity increases. So that's one example of a prediction of the flood model not being confirmed. Now, one prediction not being confirmed doesn't necessarily torpedo model, but you can look at case after case after case following that same logic. You look at trilobites, you'll see the same thing. So hydraulic sorting doesn't appear to work or it doesn't match our our, um, observations. So another one uh, is where they were, the, the objects were found, right? So like the clams were at the bottom, so they were covered first, which kind of makes sense. You know, the things yeah. that are at the bottom of the ocean would get covered first. Um, again, that would be awesome if that's what we observed at all. But clams are like, in fact, they're one of the most prevalent things in the fossil record. They're all up and down. Every layer has clams, you know, all the way from the Devonian at the bottom, all the way through like modern times. It's like every layer has clams of, of a vast variety. Well, I just ate clams the other day, so... Right. So, and where'd those clams come from? I mean, if they evolved from clams. Uh, <laughs> so, it sounds plausible if you're like, oh, well, we find clams at the clams at the bottom. But if you actually looked at the studies, for instance, um, three of them, Ponder's uh, phylo- phylogeny, not a biologist, phylogeny and evolution of the mollusca, abundance is not enough, uh, 2013 by G. Dietl, and Mandarin Twitchett, paleontology, 2008. Um, those are three different papers, or one of them's a, a textbook, actually, that give examples of fossils throughout the fossil record. So clearly it's not the clams are at the bottom, unless these clams are, like, swimming mightily past, you know, whales and whatnot, you know, right. <laughs> flying with the birds. That's another thing that kind of uh, tor- torpedoes this, particularly the differential mobility, you know. Um, so again depending on how fast the creatures could move, apparently that's another way they could be sorted. Um, but it just, that just doesn't even make sense. I mean, even if that worked generally, we never find like a rabbit down at the bottom. That just right. never, ever happens. And you never find a dinosaur near the top. Like, was there no dinosaur at all who struggled up in this muddy water? You know? Yeah. Well, even like, from like a, just a common sense thing, like I'm just picturing a worldwide flood. And water is violent. And so you have this, all this water. It's churning. It's rolling. There's going to be dirt and trees and everything just flooding. Like, it wouldn't make sense that they would just settle. Like, you would think that some things would get stuck up there just by chance, right? Like, Well, you'd expect a, a settling effect if the hydraulic sorting worked, which it doesn't. We right. just found. But you'd expect, yeah, in general. But there's going to be exceptions in a turbulent system, you know, that... And there's billion. We we found billions of fossils. You'd expect there to be exceptions if it was somewhat random. And are there any exceptions? Uh, well, the lines are fuzzy, so it's not like it's more like a gradient, right? Yeah. So it's it's not stark. Like you'll see the geological column that doesn't exist in any one place. Right. It's an amalgamation of the whole world. But you never find big exceptions. So. You never find, for instance, angiosperms are flowering plants. You never find them at the bottom, ever. So what, did the did all the magnolia trees pick up roots and like sprint to the top of the hills? Like, you know, <laughs> did, did, the, did the willow trees come along? Because like, <clears throat> so you, you find, you never find flowering plants, even ones that live in low areas, in low areas of the rock. Hmm. It doesn't, you know, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. The earth isn't, I mean, you have earthquakes, you have fault lines that move. So it could, it's possible that something could have moved these layers, like, or like, um, is it like a volcano, for example. Like, Yeah, I mean, the layers can be like tilt, even though they were originally horizontal, they can be bent, um, they can be eroded away. You know, some layers just get destroyed from erosion. Um, but even though some layers could be destroyed and some layers can be laid down um, uh, quickly, not every layer can do that. Some different ones require a lot of time. 
Um, so one good example of that is um, salt. You may not be aware, but the Mediterranean Sea once dried up. Um, it's called the Messinian salinity crisis. Um, it, it looks like it happened about five and a half million years ago. So under the Mediterranean Sea right now, there are deposits of salt 800 meters and more thick. Like, That's a lot of salt. That is a lot of salt. Under the Mediterranean, there is over a million cubic kilometers of salt. So we don't need to worry about a salt shortage anytime soon. Nope, we got plenty. We got... (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there are are different kinds of salt, too. There's um, salts called dolomites, there's gypsum, anhydrites, halites, and each of those salts require different conditions to form. So what um, geologists... think happened and here i'm referring to ryan decoding the mediterranean salinity crisis 2008 um m rovery et al in the messinian salinity crisis that's in marine geology 2014 and s duggan et al deep roots of the messinian salinity crisis nature 2003 and many others this has been written about for decades and it's not completely settled they haven't completely decided what happened but the broad strokes are that the strait of gibraltar closed due to some tectonic activity about the same time that the sea level dropped and that cut off the Mediterranean from the Atlantic. And so because it wasn't getting as much water in, it's still evaporating. So the water level drops. Hmm. Um, And as the water level drops, um, the water that's left will get saltier and saltier. It'll become more brackish. The shallow areas will dry up completely. And you see these like wide salt pans. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the deeper areas don't ever dry out completely, but it gets so salty that um, salt starts to precipitate out of solution, kind of like you see in the Dead Sea. Right. Um, And that goes on for hundreds of thousands of years until eventually the dam breaks and the ocean comes flooding back in. And Um, so how does this um, go against the flood model then? So the problem with this in the flood model, and I know when I said at the end that the waters flood back in, anytime you say the word flood, they just jump all over it. They get super <laughs> excited, you know, but the, you can have floods that aren't worldwide. Um, <clears throat> so it takes time for the entire Mediterranean Sea to dry up. That's okay. not a, that, that's not a, a fast process. Um, and even though not all of it was from evaporation, if you read the papers, there are different mechanisms. None of the mechanisms are quick, but in the flood model, this would have needed to happen. I think the flood lasts six months mm-hmm. and it's covered with water most of that time. So I don't know how you dry out and get extra salt while you're covered with water, but whatever is going to happen has to happen in about six months. And even if you said somehow, okay, maybe most layers in the world were deposited during the flood, but maybe these are special. Well, then you only have what eight thousand years to do it. It's still not enough time, right? You okay. know, so that's that's how it doesn't fit into the flood model. It just takes too much time. Gotcha. Um, in this case, the answer is that uh, well, molten salts, so salts that are like lava that are melted, they flow as easily as water, um, and they'll even give you some math for that, so it looks convincing. And so what happened here is that they, these molten salts erupted from the crust and like spread out over the Mediterranean and cooled down when they hit the water, you know, and that's how we got this layer of salt, you know, but that's not even entirely plausible. So it's not as probable as the Gibraltar Strait closing and the water evaporating and compressing over time. It certainly seems simpler, right? right? It's just one step, you know? Um, and if you're just a layman who wants to be convinced that you are already correct, that might mm-hmm. be enough for you. But there are tons of problems with it if you dig beneath the surface. The salts don't look like igneous rocks, and igneous, igneous rocks being rocks that wear magma or lava that are cooled. They have a specific way they look, and these aren't igneous rocks. There are different kinds of salt that are deposited under different circumstances. Right. Um. Another thing is, where the hell did all this molten salt come from? <laughs> like, God put it there. I, I guess. I mean, this is something that has always bugged me since I've deconverted about the, the whole creation thing in general and, and the floodwaters in particular. They go to such lengths 
to get a natural explanation for everything. You know, where did the water come from? It came from beneath the crust or above the thing. You know, where did it go afterwards? How did all the plants move away? They want a natural explanation for all of this stuff. You have a magic space wizard, dude. Like, where did the water come from? Magic. God did it. God did it. He like, created it the first time. He can create it again. It's like exactly like like I get why they're doing it because they don't want to do a whole god of the gaps. They want to have a reasonable answer, and they like they have that drive to have an answer, you know. Yeah. But man, if you've got a magic wizard, lean into it, you know. Like go all in, bro. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not going to convince me with it, but come on, you were never going to convince me anyway, right? You know. Right. But then it then it gets to back to like what's more probable? A magic wizard did it or <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> well another thing that another thing that I always was questioned was like, well, can't we just go back to the Grand Canyon, for example? Can't we just go there and actually date the the layers and say like, look, these don't because they if they were shaken up and they settled at the same time, they should all date the same right does that uh, bear out well what do you mean by date well i mean like you know you got like i don't know carbon 14 dating radiometric okay. dating so like radiometric that. dating yeah <laughs> yeah uh that is an excellent question jared uh so yes if radiometric dating was reliable at all but of course you weren't there so you don't know so for those who that that's that's the way it goes. They, they'll basically attack the foundations of radiometric dating. This one is particularly exciting for me as a nuclear engineer because it involves radiation, and I'm, I think it's cool. So uh, we're about to geek out on some radio types. <laughs> <laughs> radio uh, isotopes. I don't know what they're called. Radio isotopes. Yeah, I got. It. Okay, so basically, the way radio radiometric dating works is in nature, there are isotopes, and an isotope is a particular type of element. So the element is defined by how many protons it has. So uranium has 92 protons, and that's true of, by definition, an element with 92 protons is uranium. Mm -hmm. But um, it can have a variety of neutrons, and those together make its mass number. So uranium-235 has 92 protons, and the rest of that 235 are neutrons. Uranium-238, 92 protons, and some other slightly bigger number of neutrons. You know, um, And so that's what an isotope is. Some isotopes are unstable. they Because their mix of neutrons and um, protons are um, off balance, it will decay. It'll emit some particle or something and try to get to a stable state with some probability. And we can measure the rate that it decays at. Um, you've probably heard of the Half-Life. I played That's, that game a lot back in the day. Yeah. So the Half-Life, and that little symbol is actually correct. Well, that, that stands for the decay constant, the lambda, which oh, is related. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the Half-Life is the amount of time it takes for half of a sample to decay away. So if you had a kilogram, one half-life later, you'd have half a kilogram. Another half-life later, you'd have a quarter of a kilogram and so on. And the way it relates to the decay constant for anyone who cares is half-life equals natural log of 2 over lambda. No one cares, but that's what it is. So You care. I care, but no one, no <laughs> sane person cares. Uh, but anyways, we can measure the rate. And so if we know how much um, there was at the beginning, so, so the one that decays, the original isotope is called the parent, the one that it decays into is called the daughter. So if we know how much daughter there was at the beginning and how much there is now, it's a very simple calculation to determine how long that would have taken. So that, in a nutshell, is radiometric dating. We just do that calculation and measure the different ratios. Just off the top of my head, you just said if we know how much was at the beginning. Yes. And so that will be the refrain. Is you weren't there, so you don't know. You have to assume. Um, in fact, you can infer a lot of information from what we see now. So there's a huge variety of dating methods, and each one has their own ways of getting at that information. Um, and we could do an entire episode just on radiometric dating. But um, one of them, for instance, is um, potassium-argon dating. 
So potassium-40 decays into argon, which is a gas. Well, what they'll do is, argon is a gas. This is in an igneous, in a, in a magma or lava. The gas is released from this liquid. It's called outgassing. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they assume, well, the gas is being released, so there's no daughter at the beginning because it would all go away. And then when it cools down, it closes, gas can't get released anymore, and then it builds up. Um, now, it turns out real life isn't quite that clean. There is some small amount of gas that is trapped. They have sophisticated methods to detect trapped argon versus radiometric, radi- radiogenic argon. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do things like if it's there are isotopes of argon that don't come from radioactive decay. So if they're there, you know they came that argon came from the atmosphere, and you can tell how much because of that. Um, there will also be it, it won't if it's captured if it's inherited or excess it won't be captured at the same rate in every sample mm-hmm. it'll be somewhat random so if you get a bunch of samples and they have wildly different rates that tells you that your samples are contaminated usually it, it makes a shape like a horseshoe because these center ones don't capture as much um it's also not as disastrous as it might seem because the way it would work so you can picture uh the argon is like sand in an hourglass and the more argon you have, the more it's, it's filled up, right? The more time has passed. Well, if you capture some argon at the beginning, you've just got a little bit of sand in your hourglass, right? Right. So say, uh, one, for one example, and uh, the there's actually a textbook that you can look up. You can find it for free online. It's um, Radiogenic Isotope Geology by A. Dickin. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find a PDF copy of that online. Who knows how legal it is, but you can find it. Uh, so anyways, um, a gentleman by the name of McDougal did a test on like flower flows that were 1,000 years old. But when they did potassium argon dating, it showed up 400,000 years old. So um, that sounds really concerning when you're dating something 1,000 years and it gives you a 400,000-year-old age, right? Right. But you have to remember that is a static error. It's not going to increase. If you look at that same rock a million years from now, it'll give you an age of 1,400,000 years. If you look at that rock a billion years from now, it'll be 1,400,000 years. You know? So the older the rock age is, the less of a concern inherited argon is. Because it'll be just dwarfed by the amount of radiogenic argon. Right. By the time you get to 1,400,000 years, it's still a million years old. Right. Yeah, so even it, the corrections for this are very concerning to scientists, and they really want to, you know, develop better methods. And there are certain crystals they don't use because they know they're particularly susceptible to this. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't use, you don't just apply this method willy nilly. But if we're just worried about determining whether or not the Earth was four thousand years old or not, it's good enough to good tell enough. you that. Yeah. Uh, but there are there are other methods that have different ways of determining it. So the gold standard is uranium lead dating. So um, in this one, uranium decays into lead. There are two main isotopes of uranium, U-235 and U-238. They decay into two different types of lead um, at different rates. And so they examine these things called zircon crystals. They're crystals that are very rich in uranium but don't have much lead in them to start with. And it's kind of neat because you have two different decay pathways, one going to lead to a six, one going to lead to a seven. So you have two different clocks running at the same time. So when you test it, you can compare the two. And if they're pretty close, that gives you confidence that your assumptions weren't violated because if they were violated, they wouldn't match. Right. Um, but that then, of course, that begs the question, how do you know how much lead was there before? How do you know it didn't have all this lead when closed. There's another isotope of lead, lead 204, which is not radiogenic, meaning it does not come from decay. So it had to have been there when it originally formed. Right, so it didn't come from the uranium. The only other place it could come from is if it was already there. Right. And with that amount of 204, you can do some math and that will tell you how much lead was there to begin with. Gotcha. So you're using other things to try to piece the puzzle together, basically. 
Exactly. So you don't have to guess or you don't have to assume how much lead was there in the beginning. You can observe the amount of this other kind of lead, and that tells you how much lead was there at the start. Well, one thing that I would ask is how – so if this is based on, like, the half-life constant, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know that the half-life is actually constant? Like, couldn't it change over time? Like, So that is exactly the question that the gentleman at the RATE project, R-A-T-E, tried to examine. And they tried to argue that the half-lives had been much shorter in the past. So they were aware of all these problems with the amount of uh, decay we observe, um, things like the Oquo phenomena, which is I won't go into because it'll take like half an hour, but so cool. It's a naturally occurring nuclear reactor. Look it up. But <laughs> it, it's just the coolest thing ever. But anyway, um, so th- there's clearly this a lot of decay that needs to fit in their 10,000-year mo- model. And the only way to do that is to say, well, the half-lives are shorter, right? We've only been observing half-life for like 100 years, you know? So how do you know that it hasn't changed? Well, first of all, it's very unlikely to change because if you think about it, all of this decay is happening in the nucleus of an atom, particularly heavy atoms, like big atoms, right? So the nucleus of, say, like a uranium atom, if it was um, in this, if it was like a penny in the center of a football field, um, the nearest electron would be like outside the stadium and halfway across the city, you know? Wow. Because there's just a ton of empty space and atoms. And so the environment has to deal with all these electrons before it even touches the neutron. The neutron is heavily insulated from the environment. So it's very unlikely that it would be affected. They've tested half-lives for super low temperatures, super hot temperatures, extreme pressures, like pressures, we're talking like pressures enough to generate fusion. You know, like these are the kind of, and it's never changed. With one exception, there is one decay pathway called electron capture the closest electron gets sucked into the nucleus. One of the protons, because of the change in charge, turns into a neutron, and then a neutrino is kicked out. So that is can be, in some instances, slightly affected by pressure, because if there's a lot of pressure, you can imagine the electron, the closest one, is more likely to get sucked in. Right. Um, it turns out that um, one of the ones that's most susceptible to this is beryllium-7, and under extremely high pressures, and we're talking like pressures you'd see under the crust, like into the mantle, um, a 0.59% to 1.5% change in the half-life. Um, but that is just for this one decay pathway, and it's kind of a special case. Hmm. So none of the rest um, are affected by that. But go ahead. Well, you finish your, finish your statement because I have a question. What's your question? So – my understanding of uh, like radioactive isotopes and like when they when they're decaying, don't they give off radiation? Yes. So like radiation's bad, right? Like when astronauts go to space, it's bad. Uh, a, a significant quantity of radiation is bad. Yeah. So all right, if quote for the day, engineer says radiation is bad. <laughs> okay. So let me just walk this through real quick. And I'm just thinking spitballing here. If okay. if this radio radiation were to occur over millions of years, it wouldn't be as concentrated and as deadly, right? Mm-hmm. But if it were to occur in a shorter period of time, wouldn't we all be frying right now? Like, or wouldn't? I mean, that makes sense, right? That is a very astute observation. Um, yes. So, half life is an expression of how quickly it decays. If you reduce the half-life, it decays faster, by definition, you know? And so you're absolutely correct. If you try to compress these this um, 3 billion plus years of decay into a very short time span, you run into problems. What kind of problems, you ask? I'm glad you asked, imaginary <laughs> person, because I did the math. Um, so I did this based on the Oakwo phenomena. But basically to get, if you turned that up the dial on the half-life enough so that you could get all of this decay, 3 billion years worth of decay, into the 10,000-year-old model, um, Adam and Eve would be receiving a dose um, when they walked out of the garden 
100,000 times stronger than the current background. Roughly equivalent to getting radiotherapy for cancer every 10 hours. That seems bad. It is bad. I'm not a doctor, but it's bad. But wait, it gets worse. So to answer this, um, some people at the Rate Project thought, well, what if all of the decay happens during the flood, right? So you've got this like mile and a half of water. Water is really great at shielding radiation, which it is. Um, that would protect Noah and his family from all of this uh, radiation, right? So everything's fine. Well, if you thought compressing 3 billion years of decay into 10,000 years is bad, imagine compressing it into six months. (laughs) Because keep in mind, this is an exponential function. This is not linear. Right. Um, The the formula for activity is the activity now equals the original activity times e to the negative lambda t. It's an exponential function. Okay. So the more you compress it, it gets exponentially worse. Now, let's say for, let's just, I haven't done the calculations on the shielding of the mile and a half of water. Let's say it's shielded all the radiation. That still doesn't help because in your body right now, there's potassium-40, there's carbon-14, there's radioactive particles in your body right now. It's in the air you breathe, it's in the food you eat. Same for NOAA. We all live in a radioactive environment. And the mile and a half of water outside the ark isn't going to help him protect him from the banana in his tummy. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look just at ingested and inhaled doses mm-hmm. um, and then crank that up to the half-life is enough for all of the decay to happen in six months. So three billion years of decay compressed into six months. The dose from the radioisotopes in their body would be 117,000 millisieverts every hour. The safe dose annually for uh, most radiation workers is 20 millisieverts. So in one hour, you're getting 117,000. Uh, just for some more context, the people that died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki got a single burst dose of 6,000. Wow. So you'd, be, you'd be taking the equivalent of 20 nuclear bombs to the face every hour. So now, that that seems right there like that's enough just to <laughs> shut this down. Like I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but I don't think that's good. <laughs> and it gets even better because even the, the actual rate project, the scientists in massive air quotes at the Creation Research Institute who did this, they calcu- they came up with a problem that they couldn't solve that this radiation also generates heat. The amount of heat that all of that radioactive material that the mile and a half of water is shielding Noah from would make the surface temperature of the Earth roughly 22,000 degrees Celsius, or three times hotter than the surface of the sun. Well, that I explains don't... how the water evaporated in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> oh, it's solved. <laughs> yeah, the water evaporated, and also the lead melted. and <laughs> Yeah. So, <Wow. clears throat> kind, of a, kind of a problem. And so, they... Uh, creationists or uh, what does call them people who ascribe to the the flood, right? Young Earth creationists. Young Earth creationists for themselves. They don't have an answer for this. Not a cohesive one that I'm aware of. They'll, okay. um, <sighs> magic wizard in the sky. Well, <laughs> so like any conspiracy theory, they're very resilient. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so they'll always come up with more answers. I believe the latest answer that I haven't seen a thorough debunking of yet is called the hydroplate theory. The idea is that, okay, we can't fit all of this decay into the time of the flood or our 10,000-year-old model. So what if there just wasn't any decay before then? There was no radioactivity. And the way all these radioactive materials came from, they weren't created when God created the Earth. They weren't there. What it is, is that as the plates are moving, because of the flood, and they're like bouncing around, it's kind of like how when you have an earthquake, you'll see like static electricity sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like that, except way worse, because, you know, it's a big flood and everything. And these massive bursts of electricity 
um, cause fusion, which wets these heavy elements. So they've got like the 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 website. I can't remember the link, but you could look it up. It's just like page after page after page of of stuff that I need to go through at some point. Um, so that's their answer, the best answer I've seen thus far. Of course, that that has all kinds of problems on its own. First of all, if what what about cosmic rays? Was there just no cosmic radiation at the point? Because that's where carbon fourteen comes from. So like. Did God just like have there's like this massive wall of cosmic radiation that is like right. magic space wizard he was holding back? I don't know. Um, speaking of outer space, there's an even bigger problem. There are radioisotopes present in stars. We can see what's inside a star through spectroscopy. You analyze the spectral lines coming from the star, and that tells you its isotopic makeup. So it doesn't matter how much you vibrate plates on earth that doesn't do you any good when you can see radioisotopes light years away so yeah even if the theory was otherwise compelling since we can see the isotopes in distant stars makes sense that's where they came from so, so they're just creating more problems with this answer than than they they can answer basically to be fair i have not examined it in detail and i am not a I'm, I'm sure somebody has, but I have not read of anyone who's examined it in detail. So I cannot say with authority that they're, that the, the model doesn't work. However, I am extremely skeptical because the amount of energy you would need would be literally astronomical. Um, one would think that we wouldn't see like pockets. Like if, if these are electrical conduits, like wouldn't you see like lines of of this thing? Right. It's you know it just doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I haven't examined it in detail, so I, I don't want to say that it's definitively false because I don't know. Well, for for me though, it seems like <clears throat> if I was a, a young Earth creationist and somebody brought up the radioactivity problem, and then somebody said, "Well, this solution right here solves that," and I, I mean, I'm a layman when it comes to this stuff. And I really want an answer. I might just say, "Well, that that makes sense," and kind of go from there. Right. Basically, something else that they'll often do too is they'll find exceptions because every method, no method's perfect. You know, no method is a hundred percent accurate. There's going to be error. They're going to be contaminated samples. That's just reality. So they'll find individual times when um, the dating methods didn't work, and they'll say, "Ah, oh, see, the dating methods are invalid." You know, because it didn't work in this one instance, it's completely bunk. They particularly like to do this with carbon dating, which, of course, is of no value to date the age of the Earth. Carbon-14, I don't know how much time we want to spend on this, but carbon-14 is in the atmosphere. It comes from cosmic radiation. Its half-life is 5,730 years, and I quoted that off the top of my head. Um, and so it decays too quickly to be of use for the age of the earth, it'll be all be gone in like 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way it works is creatures that breathe, breathe in radioactive carbon. When you die, you stop breathing, assuming that you don't come back to life three days later. And um, so the carbon in your body will stop being replenished. So it'll start to decay away. It'll just go away, you know? And so if you measure how much carbon there is there now, you can do the math back to where it would have been. And that gives you an age. But this isn't um, even entirely practical for dating the age of the Earth because of well, it, no, it's certainly Earth. not. Po- it, it's it's enough to debunk Noah's flood because we can date things twenty thousand years old, and that sure. so that gets rid of that. Um, they'll often point to things like uh, freshwater mollusks, for instance. They'll say, "Oh, look, this snail was dated with um, carbon dating," and it said this snail that had just died last week was you know ten thousand years old, which is true. That's what will happen. But the reason that'll happen is because you can't, because that snail isn't getting its carbon from the atmosphere. It's getting it from the water and there's less carbon 14 in the water. Right. So it, it, what that shows is you can't use carbon 14 dating for freshwater mollusks. Not it's that like, the whole. Yeah. It's like trying to turn a screw, a Phillips screw with a hammer. Right. Exactly. And then saying, well, it didn't work. So hammers are useless. <laughs> right. No, you're just using the, you're using the tool in the wrong way. That's the right. problem. You know, uh, another one that Hoven. I, I hope he says this. He'll be like, look, if you give a, a lava fossil, 
you know, they'll ask you how old you think it is so they can know what method. Because they need to know so they can guess. Like, if you tell them, oh, this is a dinosaur fossil, they won't do carbon dating. So they'll say, oh, it's too old. Well, how do they know if they haven't tested it? They won't do carbon dating on it because there's no freaking carbon in it. It's <laughs> it's rock. <laughs> or, like, you can't date this rock with carbon dating. Well, rocks don't breathe, you fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, I guess if I was a young earth creationist and you just gave me all this information, I would probably fall back on the, well, God just made it look old and you weren't there and you can't know. And so he, you know, it it is true that God could have simply created everything with the appearance of age. I often said this when I was a creationist that, well, sure. Everything looks 4 billion years old, but God, when God made Adam, he didn't make him a baby. He made him look like he was 30 years old. Right. Which is true. I mean, God could make things look however he wanted. He could, he could have made all of the zircon crystals in the ground with radiogenic lead already there, if that's what he wanted to do. True. But doesn't that seem a little deceptive? Like, it seems a lot of deceptive. <laughs> like, you're going to make something, and there's no way anyone could ever do any test to determine how old things actually were. Like, no matter what you did, you would always come up with the wrong answer. That seems really, it seems like a dick move, you know? Like, why? Why do that? Why not leave evidence to proclaim your name, right? Well, if you did that, then you wouldn't have faith. I guess so. Well, are there any other major, um, you know, theories lowercase t that we should cover when it comes to to this that you want to hit on poly straight trees they say all the time is they're trees that are like upright when they're buried and so they had to have been buried rapidly and, and they go through often multiple layers hence poly straight um so they point to that as evidence for the flood because if these rocks took millions of years to um to be deposited they could they the tree couldn't have survived that long um in fact, what you see is, it's true you do see upright fossils, and they do go through, go through layers of rock, um, but there's nothing that says that rock can't be deposited rapidly. You know, in a lava, in a pyroclast flow from a volcano or a mudslide. Um, what you'll often see is a root system for these fossils, which shows that they're still where they were when living, and a layer of coal, and then mud and stuff on top of it. Um, and what that is, it's the coal is all of the, the floor mat of the forest being buried and then compressed into coal. But the tree is upright, so it didn't get compressed into control. coal. It's meters tall. Right. Um, interestingly, you'll often... So, so that's the claim. That shows the flood is what they'll say. Um, often, what you'll find is layers of these trees. There's an outstanding summary of, of in-situ fossils, or T0 assemblages is what he calls them, in um, a 2011 paper by DeMichel, D-I-M-I-C-H-E-L-E, and Falcon Lang, titled Pennsylvanian Fossil Forests and Growth Positions. Fantastic. It just goes like, this is exactly how it happens. Here's the mechanisms. Here's examples. Perfect. So if you're curious at all about how that works, read his paper. But um, he shows examples of where you'll have one tree in the upright position with its coal seam, and then a little further up in the column, another tree with its coal seam, and then a little further up the column, another tree. Now, what I would say is what happened is you have the tree that's buried, and then later another tree grows, and then it's get buried, and then another tree grows, and then it gets buried. You know, no problem. But if it's all there by a flood... That's impossible. I, I don't know how you'd have it. I, I guess the tree grew underwater rapidly in a, in a couple days or was transported with all of its floor mat all in one neat little package and the pot. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. As usual, you can Google up creationscience.com or whatever answers in generous Genesis, and they'll give you an answer. But if all you see is just the picture, because that's all they'll show you. They won't show you the multiple ones on top of each other. They won't explain what the coal seams mean. They'll just show you this picture of a tree going through multiple layers. 
Geologists tell you that these layers take millions of years, but this tree goes through multiple ones. Clearly, they're they're wrong. End scene. That's as far as they go. Okay. And if that's all you ever see, you might be left with the impression, oh, these stupid scientists, how could they possibly be something so ridiculous, you know? Uh, clearly, this was a global flood. Um, but for this, and for any other time, you run into this. I'm a layman. I'm not a geologist. I don't know any of this stuff, you know? Dr. Hoven is a layman. Most people listening here are layman. So if you hear something that sounds ridiculous, rather than assuming that every scientist on the planet is a moron, why not ask, huh, scientists believe this thing that sounds ridiculous. Why do they believe this ridiculous thing? Is it really as ridiculous as it sounds? Or maybe do they know something that I don't that makes it not ridiculous? Maybe there's more to the story that I don't understand. And then go find out. But it's easier just to say it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, going to find out takes effort. But if yeah, we're yeah. if we're seekers of truth, if we're if you're interested in knowing the truth, then you can't stop with the it sounds ridiculous, therefore I don't believe it. Well, there's a lot more we could go into, but we're at about an hour, so we're gonna go ahead and cut it short. Um, thanks for sticking with us to the end. If you have anything to say, if you there's something we missed or there's another video you want us to hit up or you think we're completely wrong and want to go into great detail as to why go over to facebook uh reason to doubt and you can uh, talk to either of us there we both monitor the page it's really helpful if you like the page and share this with your friends kind of spread the word and help it get to other places if you have ideas of what we should cover next i think we're going to do flat earth next but we're always open to any suggestions definitely hit us up there Uh, But in any case, until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt.